What defines success? If you're the leader of a company, you have to be a half-full guy rather than a half-empty. And I always took a half-full view of Showtime. What happens when you get knocked down? It may be a tough year. Next year may be a tough year, but there's tremendous opportunity out there as the world changes, so long as we do a good job. And it, it took a long time to do a good job. It took a long time to figure it out. What makes some people radiate? A lot of it, as we all know, is luck. And a lot of it is how you play off of that luck and good fortune. And I think that's true about business decisions. I think that's true about personal career decisions. This is Radiate. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. This week, we've got something a little bit different. I'm calling it Radiate After Dark, a special dinner conversation with Showtime chairman Matt Blank. Hosted at New York restaurant Zuma, Matt talks about his time as head of Showtime in front of a group of heavy hitters in media and tech. And if you love shows like Homeland, Billions, Weeds, then you're going to want to hear how Matt brought them to audiences around the country, how he survived the cutthroat world of cable television, and what's happening as media clashes with technology. A special shout out to Matt for doing this while all of us dug into our food in front of him. So here we go with Showtime chairman Matt Blank. So Matt, you've been on Bloomberg many times talking about Showtime and all these great shows that you've created or you've brought on to the network. Homeland, and, and I know you keep talking about Billions um, and, and other shows, but I'm curious to know, now you are chairman of, the, uh, chairman of Showtime, and, and you've got a little bit of a different role. So how does it feel now to be chairman of Showtime? It feels good. It's not really that different so far. You know, I had the rare opportunity to, to pick someone that I hoped would be my successor five years ago. That rarely works out. You know, not only did it work out, but it's, it's a person who I'm very close to personally and consider one of my closest friends. So on a daily basis, it's not that different. I do think it's affected the way I think about my lifestyle and, you know, about the future rather than today. And the, the one thing I notice is probably since I was 15 years old, this is the first time that Sunday nights don't seem to bother me. <laughs> uh, you know, when I was 15, I was worried about all the schoolwork I hadn't done that was going to come back to haunt me the next week. And, and you know, I was always one of those persons. Sunday nights, I'd get up in the middle of the night, I'd make lists. Right. You know, I don't. I don't feel. So that, you're liberated. That type of pressure, but but otherwise, it's pretty much the same. We have a very very small management team at Showtime for a company with a couple of billion dollars in revenue and you know, margin well into the 40 percents. Uh, we're still a very small company uh, in terms of my senior team, and we we don't operate terribly hierarchical. We, we all talk every day, and we see each other every day. So uh, that part of it really hasn't changed for me. What's changed is, you know, I have this ability to say, David Nevins, David, you've this, this, this is yours. You, what do you want to do? How do you want to do this? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it'll change more over time. It should change significantly over time. But for the time being, uh, you know, I have that rare opportunity to be stepping back, but still be kind of deep in it on a daily basis. And a lot of that is because of the personal relationships. So when you were knee deep in it on a daily basis, what would, what would you dread on a Sunday night? 
You know, I, I always had this belief that I was the only one worrying about things, which wasn't true. But that would sort of happen on Sunday nights. And it's also when I would sort of think of all the things that, you know, oh my God, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, we have to do this. Uh, and I, th I think that's just part of my personality. Uh, and, you know, in terms of whatever I do next, I expect I'll, I'll worry about it on a Sunday night. <laughs> now, you have a lot of, um, quite a few CEOs here at this table. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, you were a CEO of Showtime for 20 plus years, right? So you had a, a very long tenure at this network. What do you think was the secret to you lasting and thriving for that long? Well, the first 10 years were really brutally tough. Showtime was a... You know, it, it, it was a second place, a, a distant second place brand. It was like turning an oil tanker in terms of changing that. We didn't have the money to invest in programming. We didn't have the money to invest in marketing. And the brand just wasn't strong. And we had a lot of corporate changes. I had six or seven bosses for the past 20 years. Uh, wow. People always talked about, you know, in the Viacom days, would Viacom sell Showtime? Uh, and then, you know, we reached a point in time where we finally had the opportunity to start investing in programming, investing in marketing. You go. So that, the first ten years were just like you had to yeah. just fix the ship. Yeah, and I think, you know, when when you are starved for that long and you get to eat, you know, tastes pretty good. But we wanted to make sure that that we didn't squander those investments uh, and that we 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 really got to make an impression. So. About a dozen years ago, we had the opportunity to put two shows on the air, which I think changed the network forever. One was Weeds, and uh, one was Dexter. And uh, they both, in, in their own way, made their ways through the, the culture and the counterculture. And they did something very important for me, because I'm an old brand guy. I came up through marketing. I worked for some big marketing companies. Uh, they established a voice for Showtime. And, you know, now, a dozen years later, uh, if somebody's nephew comes to meet with me and has a show and no script and no agent and nothing to really show for it, I, I can pretty much say almost instantaneously, that just wouldn't be our voice. You know? <laughs> and when we read a script, I think all of us involved in that process uh, kind of know not just is something good or bad, but... but would a, a viewer say, that's a Showtime show? Mm. And, uh, you know, I think that's very important. You have to know who you are. And it took us a long way to get there. But I'd say right now we, we probably know that answer better than, better than most networks trying to do what we're doing. So then what kind of a show makes it onto Showtime? Well, I, I think if, 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 if you look at most of the shows we're known for, uh, disruptive, subversive lead characters and themes. Uh, and it's not just Showtime. A lot of those characters are, have really become part of, of the landscape of this, these serialized dramas. Uh, family being a part of that disruptive existence in some ways, you know. Uh, I'll always remember the, the show that started at Weeds. Uh, each year, uh, Nancy Botwin, the Mary Louise Parker character went a little bit further off the deep end. Started out, she was selling pot to the neighbors, 
you know, to pay the mortgage after her husband died. And by the last season, you know, she was involved with people who were human traffickers and heavy duty <laughs> drug dealers. But it was always important in that show. It would always come back to family and her trying to make that family work. Dexter was all about family. Hmm. Uh, and you, you see those those themes come through most of our most of our shows in, in one one way or another. And you you have to take these deeply subversive characters and give people a license to love them. And you know, I, I remember very early on in, in Homeland, uh, uh, my buddies at, at CBS on the morning show, uh, Nora and Charlie and Gail are all big Homeland fans, and I went on the show. I think season two to talk about it and uh, I can't remember the question that I was asked but I said one of the great things about this show is here you have a CIA agent who's far more subversive than the terrorist and yet that works and uh, you know it's it's I, I, I did you have I any had, fear that it wasn't gonna work at all Well, you, you, you always fear there's no one in television who hasn't had huge fear with anything they've ever put on the air there's no sure things but, uh, you know, we have been very fortunate to have creators bring things to us and, and just do an amazing job. These, these guys who work on uh, Billions now are just, they're just fantastic. Uh, so, you know, I hate to limit, sit here and say that's the only thing we do, but that, that is certainly a currency of the shows that are really successful for us. And they allow us to go and do other things, whether it's in boxing or docs, or we did something we've never done before, which is a weekly political show uh, for the past eight weeks now, which is a giant hit in our world uh, called The Circus. That's the, it's your buddies from Bloomberg. Yep, and, but Mark it's and a John. Very, it's a, you know, I, I heard about this show and, and I said, oh my God, is it, is it gonna be another Sunday morning show? And David Nevin said, no way. This is going to be, we're going to catch these candidates when they're coming off stage, when they're in the bus, uh, when they're with their wife or with their kids. And, and uh, it's, 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 in our world, it's, it's a big hit, probably be far, be far beyond our expectations. Now, uh, this is not a normal campaign, uh, so we are covering a reality show, not a political <laughs> campaign. So we've got to give some credit to that. But, uh, you know, I think what we do with these uh, serialized, scripted series is what gives us license to do other things and to try other things and to try and bring audiences to us that might not come to us in, in other ways. And I think the circus is a good example of that. But do you think that audience is going to stay that way? Like, do you feel like, you know what I mean, doesn't the audience change? Audience changes year to year or decade to decade. And how do you, like, know that the showtime now is going to fit the audience in 10 years? Well, the answer is it, it probably can't, and we have to be as smart and as innovative and as uh, knowledgeable about that audience to make sure that we serve them in the way they want to be served. Uh, things are changing very dramatically in television. We all know that. A lot of people here at this table know that very yep. well. Uh, yet these shows are still working. But it's, it's, it's an un unbelievable world out there. You have things like Serial. Who would have thought... You know, a podcast like Serial would, would and now they're in, into into the next next one now would so capture millennials. Uh, 
So uh, I think the good news is that uh, there's still a tremendous demand for narrative programming. If you can create it and own it, uh, you have tremendous competitive advantages around the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think in in many ways the playing field is a little more level right now. Uh, Technology has empowered many in different ways. And if you can make great content and you know your audience and you can own that content, I think you have you know, much more chance of being successful in these ver- various changing types of media markets today versus a world that was maybe much more closed, not too, not too recently. Yeah, well, you didn't have that. You didn't have a lot of options. You yeah, know, no, exactly. Even seven years ago, you didn't yeah. have a lot of options. Yeah. Um, okay, so, but back to you being a CEO. So what, what would you say, um, you know, I always like to hear sort of the, the, the hard times, right? So what, was, what would you say was your biggest mistake when you were running Showtime? You know, I think early on, uh, you know, here's, here's an interesting reference point. I was in the job for 20 years, and I got the job in February of 1995. And, you know, I think Showtime made $32 million that year, of which $29 million was non-recurring. <laughs> And I, you know, I can't say precisely what we made last year, but most of the analysts would say we made about a billion dollars. Now, and that's on a single network, largely domestic. Uh, but it, it's interesting because I re- the week I got the job, I got the job on a Monday. On Wednesday, I had to go host a giant affiliate outing in Vail, Colorado. And then I had to go on to Santa Barbara where the old Viacom, which we're part of, was doing an investor day. And coming out of that investor day, uh, one analyst put out a report valuing all the assets of Viacom, and Showtime was the last one on the list, and it had a dash next to it. And uh, a major uh, CBS had an unbelievable uh, investor day on Tuesday, which was just a, a tremendous success uh, in every way. And one of the analysts put out a report yesterday and had Showtime valued at $12 billion. So. You know, that's a pretty dramatic change. Uh, and, you know, it, it didn't happen overnight. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person. I think that it's easy to see what's wrong, you know, in markets, with customers, with product. But I think if, if, if you're the leader of a company, you have to be a half-full guy rather than a half-empty. And uh, I always took a half-full view of Showtime, and that was the message we sent to our people, that that it may be a tough year, next year may be a tough year, but there's tremendous opportunity mm-hmm. uh, out there as the world changes, so long as we do a good job. And it, it took a long time to do a good job. It took a long time to figure it out and get the right people in place. And the challenge we had was, in some of those days, who wanted to come work at Showtime and do that? There's a, there were a lot of other options for people. Uh, did you ever think you weren't going to be able to pull it off? You know, I, I, I sort of never thought that way. I, I was more focused on what we do today, and and uh, and you know, if we do do things well, you know, things will get better, and we'll be able. To, it was it was for many years. It was it was a live to fight another day type strategy, and that the, that day came where we had some resources and we had opportunity. And I think if we'd blown it then, 
you know, none of us would have had jobs, but, but we didn't. And we were very fortunate. And a lot of it, as we all know, is luck. And a, a lot of it is how you play off of that luck and good fortune. And uh, I think that's true about business decisions. I think that's true about personal career decisions. And we, we, we were very fortunate. Did you always know? Like, I'm always curious about people who rise to like levels like you, you know, who get to the very top. But did you always know that you wanted to, you know, run a company, run a network, like that? You know, that was yeah, something. I, I mean, I two things. I, I I was the kid. You know, I was raised in Queens in an apartment in Queens, apartment really in Queens. I, I was one of those kids who, who snuck back into the living room to watch TV when everybody else was asleep, <laughs> probably to a fault. You know, but uh, what did you watch? What was so attractive? Uh, super, I, was, I was obsessed with Superman. Uh, what are the shows that I liked when I was young? Man from Uncle. Uh, I'm really dating myself. But, uh, you know, I just really always liked television. And I, I do think there was a moment. I had a, I had a summer job in a big corporation here in, in the city when I was like 17. I worked in the mailroom. And I did two things. One, I was a messenger. And the other was I wheeled the cart around when people were on vacation and delivered mail to all the, all the different assistants, you know, outside the, the offices and people. And at some point after a few weeks, I got sent down to a, a floor that I hadn't been on. I got to the sort of the middle of the floor and, oh, there's these glass doors in the middle of the floor. And I go in the glass doors and you don't see any of the assistants. There's these big, you know, probably rainforest woods <laughs> walls uh, that are probably destroying the ecosystem of Brazil <laughs> as we speak. And then there'd be this little opening and there'd be an assistant in there and there'd be a conference room and then there'd be a big office. And every once in a while I could see into the office. And then at the end of that hall, there was a dining room. And I, I sort of said to myself, boy, you know. If you're going to do this, this is the place to be. <laughs> and that always stuck in my mind that if, you know, but I think that's the first time I had a, a, a just a, a pure recognition of the fact that, that, wow, some of these guys live pretty good. You know, that's not, you know, maybe business isn't such a bad thing. Uh, but I always, you know, when my first job, I always won, I was always fascinated with, you know, what went on in the big rooms. And I always, always, you know, I, I always think I was, you know, there's a time for everybody and you see different skill sets. I think one of my skill sets was that when I started working in companies and I'd go to meetings, I sort of got it. I sort of figured out what was, what was going on. Didn't mean that I had the skill sets at that point to take advantage of that. But one of the things if in everybody, a lot of people here front companies, as you see, is how many people that work in your organizations who, you know, may have gone to Princeton and then Harvard Business School and, and you know, 20 years later, they're still really smart, but they don't get it. And they're never going to really get it. They just intuitively don't figure it all out. Give them an assignment. I see or some people nodding their heads. Yeah, but yeah. I, it's just, just one of those truths. And, you know, when you evaluate people for jobs, you see, do you get it? My son. My son is 27. He's doing really well working for sort of a, a small hedge fund that's becoming a bigger hedge fund. And, you know, one thing I noticed about him early on, you know, when he started working, he did a two-year analyst thing in a, an investment bank, and he'd ask me questions. And I said to myself, wow, he, he sort of gets it. That's a good thing. He sort of has, has figured it out. 
and that is not and that is 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 not something that necessarily comes with education or breeding or or anything else it's it's is it it's, just innate I, th I think some of it is innate and some of it, it comes from you know as, as, as you get more experienced you I think you have a better fix on the qualities you look for in other people when you're hiring and you have a better understanding of, of that and and you, you, you see some of those things do you do you find that you in the time that times that you've hired do you hire people like yourself or have you have you tried consciously to hire no. people who are not like you at all you know uh, well let me answer it by by just talking about something else and and we have an experience where in, in one of the things we're trying to do and, and, and many of you will appreciate this is you know recognize the fact that entertainment companies also have to be tech companies going into the future so Several years ago, we, we introduced our TV Everywhere application, something called Showtime Anytime. So if you're a Time Warner Cable uh, subscriber, you can download the Showtime Anytime app and put your credentials in and you know, get 1,600, 1,800 hours of content wherever you have a Wi-Fi connection. And uh, in doing that, we did it all internally. We started hiring developers and hiring engineers and you know we probably have 30 or 40 now as we've developed all these over-the-top applications in the past year and we've done it again yes we use outside companies to support us but unlike HBO who went to Major League Baseball to build it uh, we built it all internally so uh, one of the things I love is that as we've hired these people and tried to squeeze them into our offices they're on my floor they're down the end of my floor and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the guys wearing capri pants in January and, and <laughs> you know, they are very different than everybody else and it, it makes you focus very much on how ridiculous our focus on diversity has, has been that we've had to focus on the most obvious things, people of color, sexual orientation, women should have an equal opportunity in, in the workplace. I mean, you can't be effective if that's not the case. How stupid it is that so much time has have to be spent against something that's so obvious. I look at that group and I say, well, that's real diversity. And people have come to me and say, well, we're going to move that group off the floor. No, no, no. I want them there. I want them there with the, with the senior management of the company to see that people who, who look different, work differently, and have a whole different head about their work are critical to the future of, of the company. And, and I love having them there. And I love seeing them go to lunch and yell, hey, Matt, what are you having for lunch? Where, you know, senior VPs of the company wouldn't ask me that, you know? So it, it, it changes your view of what diversity really is in the work, workplace and, and, it's, and, and what it needs to be in terms of, of, of the skill sets companies need to be successful in, in the future. I can't remember what your question was, and I don't think I answered it, but, <laughs> but I thought of that. Well, but that leads me to another question, which is, and I'll get back to my other one, which is, do you think entertainment companies are more resistant to, being, to hiring and being more diverse? Diverse like that, or diverse in terms of what the workplace well, looks uh, well, like? Well, well, there's a legitimacy to being diverse, you know, in color and race, yeah. and, and you know, I mean, and, and sexual orientation. But I mean, but overall, well, I think like it, overall, I think it's hard for people to 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 accept people that don't work like them. And and one of the things you see in entertainment companies is I always, I always say that you know 
the people who work in finance or the people who work in sales, they get up every day and they identify with, they work in, they work for Showtime. The for, people who work in programming, this is a good thing, they, they feel that way too, but what do they really identify with? They identify with billions. If they're working on billions, that's what they identify with. If they're working on Homeland, that's what they identify with. And that's good. That's a good, a good thing because that's the currency that we will use to be successful. The intellectual yeah. currency is their attachment to, to that. And you see that in journalism, I think. Uh, I don't know, John, if you, that's Absolutely. a good way of, of, of saying it. And, and, you know, good executives in our business manage to bring that together. I work for, you know, certainly one of the, the great executives in the, in the history of television, Leslie Mundes. And Leslie's great at that. He understands what it takes to drive a creative process, but he also knows what it takes to integrate those people into a system that makes a lot of money successfully, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and has a plan on how they're going to do that for the future. You know, you frequently see a lot of failure with that. You do. Um, the other question was, was actually about how you hire and if you hire people a lot like you. But, I mean, you basically answered that question. So. I, mean, I mean, you know, again, I think uh, the longer you do it, the more you start to realize what it is in people that you like to see. But hiring. is there any I method a, to your hiring at all? No, and I think it, you know, you know, I'd say generally there's a few things that I look for in people. I mean, uh, and, and this, there's nothing unique about this because people all say it all the same, but, but managers, CEOs, they, they like curious people. They like creative people. They like really competitive people. And, you know, you can be a CEO, a CFO, but still be really creative in the way you think and competitive in the way you think. Uh, you know, I, I, I think back, uh, I hired David Devins five years ago to be our president of entertainment, and I was looking for somebody, I felt the next CEO should be an entertainment person. I was looking for someone who I thought could su succeed me. But, you know, on the basis of just needing a great programming executive, uh, I hired David because of several shows that he had been deeply involved in as president of Imagine or at Fox or, uh, or at NBC that I thought would have been great shows on Showtime, two in particular, Arrested Development uh, and Friday Night Lights, which were amazing shows and not particularly commercially successful, but would have been huge on Showtime because they were the right voice, you know, and I think they would have been stronger on Showtime. So I, did a, I, I said, okay, this guy, you know, understands what we do. I did a little research on him before I met him, and everybody had great things to say. And when I sat down with David over lunch for like two hours, I, I really didn't want to know anything other than did I like this guy and would he fit in? I hear that all the time. You know, and, and is this someone that I thought might really grow in the company? I didn't have to interview him. I didn't have to ask him about what he'd done in his career or what, what his beliefs were. I could tell that from his work and what people said about him. So it really depends. That's a lot different. Than inter you know interviewing somebody to be an executive assistant, right? Uh, and as we all know, the workplace has changed dramatically. The types of candidates have changed dramatically. Uh, but there, there's you know there's certain truths that I think just remain when you're sitting down with somebody that you're going to entrust an important part of your business to. Now, Matt, we usually have um, as we get towards the end of the interview, we have like certain radiate type questions that we like to ask everyone so okay so one question is is it ever okay to yell in the office 
I yell a lot, but I don't <laughs> yell in a way that anybody's going to walk out and go back to the office, their office and close the door and throw up or cry. <laughs> I, I yell because I'm animated. And we, we, you know, we sit in meetings and we scream and yell and while we're laughing and funny. I don't, I don't believe in But do you ever yelling. yell to motivate someone? No. That's just sort of not my style. And I wouldn't yell to abuse somebody or make somebody feel, feel badly, I think. Uh, look, you, you know me pretty well. I tend to use humor, perhaps, to make a point in a meeting or make a point to somebody. And that works for me. It doesn't work for everybody. Uh, I've never responded to being yelled at, per se. I always had this attitude. Have well, you been yelled at? Yeah. A lot? Sure. <laughs> Tonight. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that really, if it's really yelling at you to, 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 to try and get more performance out of you or something, I don't, I don't think that, that is, is that, that's effective for me. I was always like, well, that's that person's problem. That's not mine. You know? You know, what have I got to worry about? I got a good life. I didn't go to Vietnam. I got great, I got great kids. You know, I, I really, you know, so if that person wants to yell at me and think they're, you know, you know, going to in some way change my, my life or my view of how I do, I don't think that's very that, that productive. Uh, you know, but everybody has a, has a, has a different style. And, and again, humor has always worked better for me than, than yelling at somebody if we're in a, you know, a heated conversation in a, in a meeting or, so, or, or something. And, and we yell, but we yell in a, we were usually laughing while we're yelling, right. you know, in a, in a positive way, but, but points are made. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing? You know, I don't know. I, 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 I love the art world. Uh, I love cars. Uh, I don't know. I always thought of myself as working in media. Uh, as I'm sort of thinking about what I'm going to do in the future, a couple of people have approached me about some things that are sort of banking related and all that. I said, well, that sounds sort of interesting. And then I say, well, really? <laughs> After all these years, that sounds, that sounds interesting. Well, maybe not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, there's a lot of places to do things in media. And, and, you know, I think the whole definition of, of culture and media is expanding so much as people have an opportunity to create more and, and uh, you know, we empower people to do things on an iPhone that, you know, nobody would have imagined just a, a few years ago. Uh, I, I was at this, uh, I don't go to conferences very often, but I went to this uh, Vanity Fair new establishment con conference. I don't know if any of you were at it in San Francisco in October. And it's a cool conference, a small group. And uh, <coughs> Graydon, Carter was interviewing Annie Leibovitz, and you know, she's just amazing, and she's done all this amazing work uh, for Vanity Fair over the years. And, and she's she's not the most public person, so she's not someone you've seen on uh, in the loop <laughs> with Betty Lou or anywhere else. But and uh, I thought it was really interesting. She was talking about having shot Star Wars on, on set for Vanity Fair, and. She said, uh, you know, she arrived with assistants and crates full of equipment. And uh, as she was on set, she was watching J.J. Abrams, and he was framing every shot through his iPhone. And she, and it, hmm. she said it had a, 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 a tremendous impact on her. And she said, well, you know, maybe, maybe I should try that. And, uh, you know, so, you know, 
technology is, is reaching into every part of human existence, and particularly into to culture and pop culture, and what is art, and, you know, and who are the people who make art, who are the people who make television. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that you've got to be part of that in some way. And one of the things, you know, in, as your business takes you into meetings with other companies or clients, there's a very noticeable thing that I see in rooms of, of people, and it's, it's that group of people where you kind of look them in the eye and you say to yourself, this guy or this woman, you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, how many more decent bonuses can I get before this all falls apart? And, I, and I, I'm really not kidding. I sort of see that, you know, and, and it's not age necessarily. It's not age necessarily. It's, it's, it's that curiosity factor and, and that, you know, to know and, and to want to see some of this stuff and do some of this stuff. And uh, that's going to change everything around us far more than it's changed it so far. And, mm. and you know, hopefully it's going to be fun and interesting and something that, you know, we all get to take advantage of in some way, shape, or form. You know, there's one CEO that, I, that I've talked to who says, you know, I have, a, I have a management trick, Betty. Like when I'm in a meeting and I want to wrap up a meeting, I start talking really slow. And if I talk really slow, people start to get the hint to wrap the meeting up. So I'm curious, like, you know, in your years of managing people, like, do you have any kind of secret like that? No, I think I, you know, my, my closest colleagues in my company might, might, after a cocktail or so, say I have a short attention span. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I sort of, no, I don't have any tricks like that. I, I, I sort of think that it's important to run good meetings and to get to the point. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed over the years, there are people who think uh, meetings are great if everybody comes out of them happy. And I think meters, meetings are great if you come out of them and make the right decisions. And, and you know, there's, there's a meeting culture that you see some people manage very well, and you see others don't manage well at all. Next week on Radiate, author and personal finance expert, Farnoosh Tarabi. I'm a huge fan of her podcast, So Money, and she's now host of a new cable television show, Follow the Leader. Farnoosh talks about creating your own brand and how she rebuilt her career after being laid off during the financial crisis. Thanks for joining us. I'm Betty Lou. I'd love to hear from you. Please leave your email on our website, radiateinc.com, to get exclusive sneak peeks at upcoming episodes and what we're up to at Radiate. Also, please review us on iTunes and find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. See you next week on Radiate.